0: Welcome to God Pods, Faith Conversations from Boston College's Church in the 21st Century Center. Hi, I'm Nathan Woodhouse, and I'm a doctoral candidate in systematic theology at Boston College. And today I'm with M. Sean Copeland, who is Professor Emerita of Systematic Theology at Boston College. And we will filming a podcast for C21 Center here at BC um, in the series called God Pods. And today, Our topic of conversation is going to be um, the current context of police brutality and anti-black violence in the United States, race and racism, and the Christian faith. So welcome, and we're going to go ahead and get started.
1: Thank you, Nathan, very much.
0: much. So I think something that perhaps would be fruitful to talk about beginning is sort of the context that we find ourselves in. Um, Whenever George Floyd, of course, was murdered by police. Um, That is something that sort of stuck in the heart and the minds of many people in the United States, but also around the world, and of course not long um, before that, we had the police murders of uh, Breonna Taylor and others, and as well as um, the stalking and killing of Ahmaud Arbery, and just outside of part of uh, Atlanta, Georgia. So I think think maybe if we could talk a little bit about the situation of, of racism and violence, that'd be a good place to be.
1: Yes. It's an awkward place to be. Yeah. It's, a, it's a strange place to be. <clears throat> I think we all know that there have been a series of murders or shootings, killings of young black men mm-hmm. and middle-aged black men in some form uh, losing their lives to the police for some time now and this has been intense certainly since about 2014. Mm-hmm and it seems that this particular incident, uh, the death of uh, George Floyd, or better his murder, Mm. because it was captured on film, because someone videotaped it from their phone, Mm. recorded it, because there were black and white people standing around this event, Mm. Uh, it, it seemed in this way once it was posted to capture not just the imaginations but the hearts uh, of uh, people around the country and as you said around the world. Right. Um, it's the, the presence in, in the sense to use Emily Towns's phrase of this, uh, this vicious mm. imagination right. and that we saw someone actually lose their life in front of us and in some ways we were all evoked to right. do something, we were provoked right. to do something. Right. So this has been really quite, uh, quite a strange time, and, and many writers have begun to associate this properly, I think, with the experience we're having of the novel coronavirus. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, and of course,
0: George Floyd was positive. Yes,
1: yeah. yes, and the key symptom being not being able to breathe. Yeah. So his last words, I can't breathe, mm-hmm. I can't breathe were were they shook people in a way that people I think hadn't been shaken before yeah. I also think you know and you can you can say something to this too, of course, <clears throat> that people have often thought that these men have been provocative to the police mm. that they've done something mm. that uh, that they're being tracked down because they've got uh, warrants for their arrest or right. they're suspects that are very right. active suspects uh, and this this was not the case in this particular instance. People saw someone not resisting. Right. They saw someone in in a real way acquiescing to the uh, the, to the to the the moves of the police, to right. the shoving and yes. the pushing and the. And and it was shocking because we don't believe that. Right. And so we had to now give credence mm-hmm. to the statements that black people have made right. about. Uh, unwarranted uh, uh, police violence, in particular, but certainly unwarranted violence with the shooting of, uh, right. as you put it, the stalking and shooting of Ahmaud Arbery.
0: Right. No, I, I think it's such, it's it's uh, it's grotesque, especially to have. To have it on film, it makes me sad that that's the threshold of our compassion Yes, is that it has to be digitally mediated to us in real time. And yes. even after that, of course, there were people questioning whether or not uh, this stop and this, you know, use of force was legitimate as though you needed to know whether, you know, murder on live stream yes. is legitimate or not. Yes. Why should we have to question in our heads whether that was a, a good or a, or a bad or an evil honestly thing? Um And again, you mentioned Dr. Towns, and that's just part of our uninterrogated history that we have um, of race and racism in the United States. It has become so normalized among us that when we see it, we don't even recognize it.
1: The police are there to arrest, but they are not there to convict and to execute. That's not their task. And I think the other dimension of that was the face of the officer. I mean, right. It just seemed so indifferent. It was. It just seemed so callous. Mm-hmm. And this becomes the question, as you point out, mm-hmm. about uninterrogated history. Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes us back. Right. Even in innocent Minneapolis, we right. have this idea about some parts of the Midwest as of being course. innocent and sacrosanct. Not, not so.
0: Not no. the case. And that's important. So I mean, that does, that does take us back to um, why are the police the the way that they are, how did they become that way? And so I think it's important for us to talk about, especially in this time, uh, the development of the policing of black bodies um, and of black folks in the United States and also the development of, of race and racism. And so I think if we could talk a little bit about the foundations of our our nation, uh, that would be helpful especially. And so what I'm thinking of particularly is um, the just these the the trade in persons from the coast especially of West Africa, yes. which began much earlier than, than folks want to admit or perhaps yes. that they simply don't know. Yes. Um, of course in, in 1452 or 1462 I believe the first um, enslaved person was stolen from uh, the west coast of Africa and taken to Portugal. Yes, So almost 200 years before yes. we would have any brought to uh, South America, Central America, the Caribbean or the United States. Yes. But of course what people often miss and sort of this switch is that there was no such thing as the white race yet or the black race yet um, that was developed alongside and was uh, concomitant with the development of capitalism and of land grabs from indigenous persons in the United States. And so I think maybe let's talk a little bit about how we came to be in this situation.
1: Yes. You've thrown out some really important uh, markers and and points uh, for conversation and for people who are listening to perhaps begin to pursue on their own, uh, to deepen their own knowledge. But even if we start at 1619 and uh, the incredible uh, recognition Mm -hmm. that 400 years later we find black bodies still being sequestered, policed, surveyed, that you can still track down. And uh, eliminate uh, mm. black people, this is the case of ahmed Aubrey in, in particular, but not not solely or exclusively no. so if you think of sixteen nineteen these twenty people who are here who were brought to uh, the United States, you think of what happens. Um, you think of the long history uh, that's inter- intertwined in that long history, right. of course, is um the whole issue of indentured servitude yes that this country in fact uh like australia we had a penal colony Mm -hmm. in georgia Mm uh you know we had indentured servants who were able to try to work for someone who had a land grant from the monarchy who then uh, hired these people or brought them over to work work the land yes and that these africans began in almost the same way. Yes. But following, uh, I guess, about 30 or 40, 30 years or so later, right. we get Bacon's Rebellion right. and we get the rising of the indentured servants yep. because they're denied what mm. was owed to them yes. because we refuse to pay what we owe. Mm-hmm. That greed, that vice becomes a part of right. um, our sense of capitalism getting as much as you can. Right. And uh, what happens after this, of course, as you know, is that there's a law passed that, in fact, we'll, we're going to deal with white indentured servants, but the black indentured servants right. become enslaved forever, For and the right. child follows the condition of the mother. Yes. So that yes. the mother is enslaved, so is the child. It doesn't matter who the father right. is but in fact um, there is this uh, this pattern right. and it continues and it continues right
0: and there was there was almost no precedent for that as well english common law for a, a great deal of time followed the civic condition of the father that had always been the case until we come to the united states and we recognize a few things not only do we need cheap if not free labor and do we need a constant supply of it but after a time we realized that the indentures people were surviving their indentures yes and so paying them their freedom dues is becoming expensive yes and so there were already um, some chauvinistic attitudes towards people who were not from uh, northern europe especially yes and so it became easy at the same time to say what sort of social and political hierarchies can we create to make sure that this labor stays uh, if not free, then at least very inexpensive, and then how can we perpetuate it? Yes. Right.
1: There's this uh, way in which now we think about, uh, through scholarly work of uh, so many different people, uh, George Yancey, for instance, mm-hmm. or uh, we think of um, mm-hmm. Cornell West. Of course. Um, there uh, is a sense in which we've made race a social construct. Yes. And this stems from this experience. Right. Uh, in the seven early seventeenth century, uh, mid seventeenth century, right. that that this artificial epidemiology, yes, right, this epidermis, this mm. skin, will now become uh, what it is yeah. that we will identify people, how we will identify them,
0: right? Difference extrapolated out, and we needed that. We needed something visual to really,
1: yeah, pull us up short. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So there's no, in this sense, to use a, a sort of an interesting phrase, passing. Yeah, so uh, unlike indentured servants who are from, as you said, Europe, these uh, Africans cannot, cannot yes. pass. No, they couldn't. And so what happens is that, uh, as you pointed out, uh, there is this system that we developed. And right. it, it moves into a kind of... Well, it moves into the plantation system mm. in the sense of having large bodies of land that we have free or cheap labor. Right. And even people who did not have uh, workable crops,
0: right, right. like
1: Massachusetts right, right here, there was slavery in Massachusetts. Oh yeah. Winthrop's brother-in-law is very disturbed that he finds out there's slave labor in Rhode Island, and so he wants to pick up on it. There's no huge crop for slavery uh, for anything like slavery right. uh, in Massachusetts, but but for a short time there mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. slavery here in, in Massachusetts. I think the, the dimension of uh, surveillance that you brought up. Uh, this follows from uh, patrollers, of course, yeah, who were there to ensure that slaves didn't leave the plantation, mm-hmm. or if uh, they
0: if they did, these brigades of men, uh, yes. off, most mostly men, almost exclusively yes. men, white men. Who didn't know they were white yet. No. Of course. And so you have these land grants being given to those um, who had family money, or perhaps those who even, you know, who would ship uh, enslaved persons from West Africa. They yes. were given land grants Elections. just for bringing them. Yes. But after Bacon's rebellion, and after in Virginia, especially the failure of tobacco as this monoculture, you know, they realized they're going to have to start diversifying what they were planting. And so they realized that you've got this lower class, so to speak. Group of, of Europeans, of yes. Anglo Americans, this new group, and deciding well, we don't want to give them the rights, especially of like college attendance, education, um, land, especially, or political and civic. Uh, rights. We don't want to give them that, but we want to keep them on our mm-hmm. side. Exactly. And so these yeomen essentially get turned That's into this way of putting it policing force, and they become responsible for maintaining this boundary, which is what Theodore Allen, you know, says they maintain this boundary between who's in and who's out. Yes, you
1: know? yes. And uh, when, when you th- when you think about this. Uh, There's an identification, there's a psychic identification with the plantation holder and the desire to personally somehow advance. So you get um, the way in which uh, Walter Johnson lines out the various uh, roles and functions in the slave trade. So the traders and what their role is, uh, the way in which uh, slave auctions operate, Mm. the way in which... Um, the uh, the movement of enslaved people mm-hmm. uh, works. And this yeoman class, as mm-hmm. you would call them, borrowing uh, an, uh, an English term, right. um, really performs a couple of functions. It, it It's the dividing line, mm-hmm. but it also is able to have a line of aspiration mm-hmm. for a different kind of life and a different kind of right. future for themselves or yes. their children. Yeah. I think the other the other thing that happens uh, here um, in, in this movement uh, to understand uh, understand race um, is that is that eventually we find out, and this is part of the franchise and race right. uh, that uh, you must have property to vote. Oh, right. So the franchise in the United States has always been meted out in a very meager and stingy way. Mm. Only white men with property vote. Right. And then, after a while, sometime, Mm -hmm. white men voted. And then, after a very long time, black men, some black men, got to vote. And finally, we get some changes in the Constitution, some amendments. Mm. But we hang on to these people, don't Mm. we, in the 13th Amendment. And then, we finally, in the 20th century, less, well, 100 years ago, Mm. women get the franchise. So there's a there's a gradual movement right. uh, here of meagerly, yeah. meanly handing out uh, political rights, right. which handing seems, out political rights,
0: which seems like a knock in the face to what freedom is exactly meant, exactly. meant to mean. And meant so, mean. so what this what this brings up for me is um, perhaps uh, we focused a lot on, on racism and its development and how racism created race and how there is no thing in space and time that you can point to and say that is a race or there are racial groups and if they would just talk and get along, no, you know, no, this is an invention. This is a, a means to social control uh, that racism operates this way. but. So um, we could focus for a long time on that, but instead of, instead of doing that, I think let's focus on uh, forms of resistance. And especially, I know that you have read and written, uh, uh, written especially extensively on forms of religious resistance that enslaved persons um, found themselves not only capable of, but, but quite creative
1: with. So if you could, let's talk sure, a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, slave resistance is a It's an incredible phenomenon, and what it reflects back in a a great universal way is the the power of the human spirit. Not to be beaten down, uh, not to uh, just embrace uh, its its denigration, but to push against it. And so enslaved people did this in many ways. Uh, They did this surreptitiously by uh, learning to read and write, by listening in on the lessons of little white children as their parents might have taught them to read. They uh, found themselves able to uh, certainly, uh, and first of all, escape, Mm. to run away, to find patterns and ways to signal to one another when the time was right, when the time was right. Mm. So we have... Situations like uh, we see in the wonderful movie Harriet, mm. which, uh, which is drawn from, um, from her own uh, experience of freeing mm. uh, enslaved people, leading them to freedom seriously. Right. Uh, we also have people who find freedom in, uh, in religion, yes. and religion becomes uh, a great font and source. Uh, which which steals s t e e l s steals them right. against uh, the the kind of bone and soul crushing experience that slavery was. Yeah. So so in this way, if we start to talk about the development of what we know as the historic black church, right. it begins. Not by being exhausted by Christianity, right. but by a kind of fusing yes. and a kind of blending yes. of African uh, experiences right. of the holy. Uh, and those are culturally varied because we yes. all know that no one who was um, kidnapped uh, and sold was an African, put no, that word in no, no. They all belong to different linguistic cultural groups. Yes, they were Iwe, they were mm-hmm. Bini. Mm-hmm. they were Ibu, they right. were Yoruba. And they bring with themselves their own culture right. and their own religious aspirations and rituals, and right. you try to replicate some of that mm-hmm. in this new place. Yeah. And so uh, Albert Raboteau, yes, yeah. uh, one of the first, the first book yes. on the invisible institution, right. he calls slave religion, right. the religion of the enslaved people, mm-hmm. and what he traces out, of course, is the way in which uh, these people went off mm-hmm. at night and hid in. Uh, little uh, valleys or little cops of trees, and and sang and prayed, or they sat in their cabins. Yeah, the hush harbors. Yes, yes they yeah. sat in their cabins and they uh, they sang and prayed. And right. what did they pray for? Most often, they prayed for freedom. Yeah. And the thing that that has always struck me uh, tremendously uh, in slave narratives is to read about people who are praying for mm. freedom, mm. but who say if. Uh, if we don't see it, let our children see it. So there's an, an enormous um, sort of generosity and desire to find uh, a future life for their children and their children's children. Right. So religion becomes then a very uh, steady resource. Um, someone like Gary Wilmore mm-hmm. in his um, "Religion and Black Radicalism," mm-hmm. Black Religion and Black Radicalism, right. is clear to remind us that Christianity does not exhaust. Uh, no. black religion. No. That there is so much more there that we don't even know and that scholars are beginning to take apart now right. to find uh, practices and rituals right. that stem from uh, African experiences. Right. The, other, the, other, the other point is that when you read about the spirituals uh, people will say that the words we made up that we yes. had an experience and we yeah. reflected on that experience and we sang about it. Right. But the tunes came from the melodies came from our great great granddaddies from Africa. Right. So right. there's a there's an ongoing connection. There's an ongoing connection. Yeah. There's
0: a there's a so much there to think that reminds me of uh, tr- what Tracy Hux calls you know multiple religious allegiance. Yes. You know people have all of these different fires kindled yes. everywhere, and sometimes yes. they would build up you know two fires together, but they've kept them burning singularly as well at the same time, and. I mean, it's just it's just fantastic because I mean, not only is this what we think of as perhaps typically religious and worshipful styles, mm-hmm. but I mean, these are also very practical forms of religion from yes. you know from especially the West Coast of of Africa. Um, you know, there Roboto also mentions that when we hear uh, narratives of enslaved persons who resisted um, overbearing overseers and and mm-hmm. slave masters as well, you know, we we try to put it in common ethical terms, maybe of good and evil, but he says, no, this is just a matter of survival. Yes. You know, this is what this is. And so, you know, fighting someone or running away, um, which has uh, more of an even psychic element to it, running away did. But also even of using... Perhaps what we would think of as nefarious means of poisoning someone, or of um, you know having to use violence, you know, as much yes. as we want to disdain yes. it and avoid it at all yes. costs, you know, these folks were not asking questions about good and evil, but am I going to be, am mm. I going to wake up tomorrow, yes. and if I don't, will it be all right? And, yes, right, and this yes. is the future aspect.
1: Well, you're thinking uh, perhaps about the Stono rebellions, yeah. which were the the fiercest and most violent slave rebellions. Um, historians would tell us that, in fact. There were many more rebellions than than we know because no one wrote about them. Of course, um, it would be too dangerous, Bad or too optics. unsettling. Mm. Yes, yeah. exactly. Even then, Even then, of course. Even then, the other the other just to make one last point about this is hiding, mm. and we get yeah. the famous story of Linda Brent or Harriet Jacobs, yes, who yeah. in fact is buried. In the Mount Auburn Cemetery, right, here. right. Um, she uh, hid in uh, in a garret yeah. for years, um, evading um, to use a nineteenth-century tw- word, lecherous yeah. uh, and uh, perverted yeah. uh, slaveholder, yeah. who was himself a physician and a member of uh, the United States Congress. Unsurprisingly, yes, there there is. There are any number of, of incredible stories. Uh, Henry Box Brown mm-hmm. who mails himself somehow. He gets a uh, a, a generous and, sure. and and collaborative white person right. to to put him in a box and to mail him uh, mail him to freedom. Uh, the Crafts, uh, this couple who in fact pose mm. uh, she as a, a young uh, white man mm-hmm. and he as her body servant. Right. Uh, they uh, they find themselves uh, in this situation and they they get out. They yeah. get out of slavery. Right. So so there are many different ways that people worked uh, to do that and religion becomes a sustaining a sustaining right. dimension dimension right. to that.
0: And so you mentioned the the black church. So I think we could talk a little bit more contemporaneously about what the black church. Uh, means and what function that it serves, but not also the black church, but black theology as well. Uh, and so what this reminds me of is something that uh, um, Professor Ebony Marshall Terman says, is that the black church doesn't exist because it wants to, but because it must. Yes. Because it needs to, as a, as a site of survival and as a site of, of respite from a, a, a world generally, but more specifically a, a, a United States that perpetuates white supremacy and its spaces and its practices and its traditions and protects whiteness as this sacred object that um, is obviously very well guarded by people who uh, police in more metaphorical terms but also very obviously physically as well. So let's talk about black theology as a development of, of these creative forms of resistance.
1: Well we could say that black theology certainly existentially begins really in pain and in joy. So, there's already, if you like, a kind of blues right. aesthetic surrounding black theology. But at the same time, it begins in the recognition of uh, a number of pastors and uh, young theologians right. uh, in 1968, 69, right. 66, 67, course, 68, right, with 68, the Detroit 69. Riots. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah these people, these men really, right. begin yeah. to raise a number of questions about the meaningfulness of their theological education mm. to the situation in which they found themselves. Right. And so someone like, for instance, Albert Clegg, who begins yeah. in Detroit, the Shrine of the Black Madonna, right. who does a, a really an aesthetic makeover. Mm. There's a black Mary, there's a black Jesus. Right. And then you have this is already around 67, Mm -hmm. but then in 1968 we recognize uh, the tragic um, and and brutal assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. Jr. which um, which galvanizes the African-American community, it galvanizes the black community and it galvanizes the nation Mm -hmm. because there's just eruptions everywhere. And um, one of the things that happens of course is that uh, early on in April of that year, uh, within that week, the uh, Black Catholic Clergy Caucus, mm. Black Catholic Priests are meeting right. and they develop a manifesto in which they identify the Catholic Church as a white racist institution. And it's completeness in the way in which you describe the way in which Christianity has protected whiteness here Never. in the United States, certainly. Oh, yeah. But uh, there's also a young theologian, James Halcombe right. who is out in Adrian, Michigan, right. about 70 miles from Detroit. And right. he's furious yes. because he sees the, uh, the failure mm-hmm. of his uh, education to meet this crisis. And so what does he do? He goes home <laughs> uh, to Arkansas, and he, he goes to his brother's church. Mm-hmm. And he, he's, he, locks, he says he locks himself in his, in his brother's office. His brother gives it over to him. And he writes. He writes every day. He just stays there. He writes and he writes and he writes. And he comes up with what is a very uh, robust, mm-hmm. it's an angry polemic. It is. Black theology and black power. It is. And what he wants to say to us is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is black power. Yes. It's consonant with black power. It teaches us in that gospel about the dignity of every human person. It teaches us about the need to have people's, to use this phrase, vital needs Mm. met. It teaches us about respect and it teaches us to love the neighbor. So what Cone does is he just, he takes that gospel and he reads it Mm. directly through the black experience and he finds Jesus. Jesus is God's black warrior Mm. come to the oppressed. Mm. So this is really the first, perhaps the first person he is to use the phrase black theology in in writing right. and certainly in sustained writing. Yes, right. So this book is one that continues mm. to uh, to challenge right. black and white people because yes. he says white people can't be saved. Right. Well, you can't be saved, he says, not because you're white, but because you won't take on the experience of blackness. That you won't, to put it in different terms. You won't be friend, be neighbor. Yeah. You won't be you won't be compassionate and loving right. to another human being right. who just happens to be black.
0: Right. Yeah. I think when I think of when I think of that work especially, I do hear a lot of uh, Dr. Cohn's anger and that's what a lot of people that's what a lot of people read whenever they read that but there was so much to just be so righteously angry about of course at the time and i think what's most sad is i think that was published 67 very end of 67 and early then into 68 i think what's so sad is that when i heard him speak years later uh, 2016 2017 i think um at uh, one of my alma maters you know there had been a noose found mm. on campus recently and you know here we are and in well into the 21st century and uh, he was still angry and yes. why shouldn't and why shouldn't he yes, have been he be. still angry a, a, about this because still there is this inability right to to have compassion or to see past things that are just beyond the you know the tip of our own nose you know to yes. be so selfish yes um, which is unfortunately i think yeah. what we see a lot of uh, yes. still today but of course dr cohen had many students Yes. And, and many of them were very fond of him and, and yes. loving towards him, but uh, I think perhaps one of the most profound works that was written after him was Kelly Brown Douglas's The Black Christ. Yes. And she produced this amazing piece of scholarship that said, you know, absolutely, there must be this identification of Christ as black, not only existentially in an experience, and perhaps not also, if not uh, a bit ethnically, we need to talk about the fact that Jesus does not have blonde hair and blue eyes. He's not six feet tall and has like 2.3 children. But you know that he (laughs) was a Palestinian Jew who lived an empire. And so his experience for the United States is the black experience in the United States. But something that she... It's very careful to point out, and not only her, of course, Dolores Williams as, as well, and others, was that um, we have overlooked black women. Yes. And that we constantly yes. overlook yes. them, that we read yes. past them. Yes. Uh, and we do it every single day. And, of course, this is where your own work picks up, and so I think we should talk, uh, we should give some good time to, to speaking about that, to the womanist tradition and how it developed.
1: Yes. Um, black women found themselves between, uh, and really between, but a part of uh, uh, two different um, trajectories of mm-hmm. critique. There is the racial critique mm-hmm. in the United States and there was also the feminist critique. So I mentioned earlier women only in 1920 in the United States. I mean they're voting in New Zealand really mm-hmm. in, in the late 19th century uh, but mm-hmm. not here. So here we have a uh, black women in between. And so, uh, Francis Beale, right. many, many years ago, one of the first, who talked about the triple jeopardy of black women, gender, race, and class. Mm. So, uh, because at that time, of course, we'd begun the kind of feminization of poverty, right. that poverty was about women, and it was about a certain kind of woman, and usually that woman was black. Mm. And we get from our presidential leadership at that time, this kind of magnification Mm -hmm. and this kind of um, negative uh, depiction of black women. Mm -hmm. And womanist theology really emerges to provide not simply a counter, Mm -hmm. but a counter to the absence of black women. It's um, a wonderful phrase um, used by um, Anna Julia Cooper. When and where I enter, the whole race enters with me. Mm. So black <laughs> women who give life uh, to, to uh, female and male children. Right. Where black women are, everyone is. Mm. Um, the whole race comes with them, she says. So there is, uh, there is a, a, a defined critique. Uh, this phrase womanist comes from uh, a book by Alice Walker in search of our mother's gardens, in which she uh, defines the word womanish. Mm-hmm. She's using it as a comparative the phrase mannish, right. which is an old southern term. <laughs> you're from the South. Yes. I'm sure you've heard it from I've somewhere. It. Yes. So this phrase womanish, uh, stop acting like you're grown. You're grown. Don't mm-hmm. be so womanish. Mm-hmm. Or mannish, mm-hmm. you don't have long pants yet. <laughs> so there's a way that uh, she captures this. And she makes it a positive mm. definition. Right. She says that you are bold, you are fierce, that, that you are capable, that you are strong, that you are loving, that mm. you are intelligent. Right. Um, to, to, to go back to Harriet, she has a wonderful line there uh, when, uh, when she says, um, uh, can, I, can I take people to freedom, the little girl asks. And the mother says, yes. And it won't be the first time. Mm. Uh, so, so there are there are ways in which this phrase begins to function mm. as a lens for critique, yeah. and so it provides uh, a touchstone. Right. Doesn't mm. exhaust, but it provides a touchstone. Right. And so you have incredible people um, like uh, Katie Geneva Cannon, uh, the late Reverend Doctor Katie Geneva Cannon, who uh, died almost three years ago now. Um, her work, uh, which really gave us. Um, a kind of black, a black womanist ethics, yes. or the work of uh, uh, Dolores Williams, right. Sisters in the Wilderness. Making a
0: way out of no way. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Or someone like uh, Dr. Emily Towns, we right. mentioned Dr. Jacqueline Grant, we can mention. There are a line of, of ongoing uh, writers and thinkers mm. who embody that spirit to provide a critique, uh, a critique of, of the experience of Black women right. in the United States. Right. So, in fleshing freedom, which mm-hmm. uh, which is the book perhaps we're thinking of right now, uh, of my own, tries to demonstrate how Black women continue the effort to enflesh freedom. Mm-hmm. Doesn't exhaust anyone else's efforts, but it pays attention to the work of Black women and it pays attention to the way in which their bodies have been used throughout. Uh, these three hundred years, four hundred years of slavery, um, as uh, for for production, for reproduction, mm. uh, for uh, all sorts of labor, and uh, there is a, a sense in which these women uh, are struggling, really. But it's it's not as if it's oh poor me. There's a lot of joy in that struggle, and there's also a lot of faith in future possibilities, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of faith in the, tra- the transcendent, in the mm-hmm. divine. So, so these, these efforts, and really my own effort, I could say, is an attempt to also uh, deal with the issue of a black Catholic theology mm-hmm. that addresses uh, these kinds of uh, concerns. And so, what that I think
0: reminds me of, especially, is uh, at an event here around Boston that I was at. Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas came to speak, and she spoke at length on her on her uh, work "Stand Your Ground," which she wrote about mm-hmm. uh, American exceptionalism, especially white exceptionalism, mm-hmm. and, and whiteness as this sacred object that is perpetuated and it's protected. It's protected legally and it's protected socially and politically, of course, and it it definitely creates a boundary into which um, people want to prevent penetration. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, police are one way that that is policed. That's one way that it is protected. Uh, But something that she also said um, that stood out to me when we were uh, listening to her speak is that she said that white folks don't have to be white. Mm -hmm. And so our initial Way that we've been conditioned to listen is to think, oh no, but I have white skin, I mm-hmm. I have to be, you know. Maybe you, you know, mm-hmm. you're not sure, but of course she meant something much more profound than, than, than skin colored, and so that is something that that really hit me hard, mm-hmm. and, it, and that was in my first year of my time in Boston, and now moving into my fourth, it's still something that lingers mm-hmm. with me, but it's also something that I've tried to take seriously, and ask myself, obviously she didn't mean skin color, okay, so white folks don't have to be white, you know, what does that mean? And of course it means a number of things, and it added, it's at an intersection of so many things. Um, it means becoming uncomfortable, it yes. means relinquishing privilege, <clears throat> it means choosing to identify um, with the oppressed in and, and some way, and it's mm-hmm. not going to be uh, in an easy way. There are many forms of appropriation that can occur that would be uh, ugly and inappropriate. And so it's difficult to find ways to resist without appropriation. It's also difficult to to overcome what is rightfully so much antipathy from black folks, especially in the United States, for how good, seemingly well-meaning white folks want to participate. But especially white Christians who are beginning to ask themselves, it seems as though that this white supremacist, anti-black, racist country that I live in, that I participate in, I want to give up what it means to participate in this. And so what can we do? And so I know you and I both are very fond of the late German Catholic theologian, Johann Baptist Metz, and especially his concept of dangerous memory, and of narrative, and of solidarity. And so I think if we could talk a little bit about that, maybe we could... uh, perhaps give folks some means in their everyday lives to um, to have what he called an apocalyptic consciousness, yes. to see things not as they are, but as how they could be unveiled.
1: Yes, so. yes um, I, mean, I think t- to go back to the death of George Floyd, mm-hmm. as, as that kind of moment, and there is, <clears throat> as we know, um, the incredible phrase in scripture, unless the grain of wheat fall into the ground and die there is no there's no harvest right and there is happening now a very strange harvest mm. when you think of this in the 401st year of people of african descent being brought to the united states not belonging but being brought not ever finding a place of belonging really but so many people have died and it seems as if this death has been for the country a kind of tipping point. And what is what is being harvested are, in fact, a number of movements, mm-hmm. uh, not only Black Lives Matter, of taking uh, a lead mm-hmm. and providing nonviolent uh, uh, resistance, but uh, the work of Reverend Barber, and Reverend Theo Harris in the Poor People's Mm -hmm. Campaign. Also, I think, uh, when I see young white people marching, what I think is that these must be people who are benefiting, in fact, from knowledge received through ethnic studies programs, Mm -hmm. through black studies, Mm -hmm. through African-American studies, African studies, Mm -hmm. feminist studies, Chicano studies, Latinx studies. That Asian American studies, that all of these ethnic and area studies, as they are called in so many different universities, mm-hmm. have given them some knowledge of the positivity of difference. Right. And so, so what what I'm praying for, of course, is that they will continue. Charles Blow had a, a article in the Times a few few days ago, uh, you know, don't fail us, white allies, don't stop. Yeah. And so w- what that means is to remember that, let that memory trigger in right. others a-, a feeling of critical self-examination Yes, of what it means to be human. I mean, when I think Douglas says uh, white people don't have to be white, it means that you don't have to be anti-human. Yeah. You don't have to be stuck in some really negative, sinful pattern um, that, that is individualistic mm. to the point of turning yourself into an idol. Mm-hmm. We have too many examples of that all around us. I think, I think it also means uh, learning to befriend someone, to take a risk, mm-hmm. and to put yourself in the way of that. Yeah. To put yourself in the way of connecting with uh, a classmate. Of connecting with uh, someone in a store. Right. I mean, I'm I'm thinking simple things yes. right now, just yes. simple human yeah. things, simple human things. It's it's someone wrote a there was a paper, article in the paper the other day about how uh, all of these uh, gestures by corporations, everyone is affirming Black Lives Matter. What does that really mean? Right. I right. mean, are we doing it because it will increase sales? Of course. You know, I'm, course. I was afraid of the Juneteenth celebration. I thought suddenly Hallmark is going to put out a Juneteenth <sighs> card. You know, and movie. Just like, mm-hmm. just like Sears took over Dashikis in the '60s. Right. I mean, there are ways in which these things become commercialized yes. to a point that they have no meaning whatsoever. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that's what that's part of what you're getting at mm-hmm. in terms of inappropriate appropriation. Right. That finding out how we can be supportive to one another without taking over one another's cultures right. or cultural artifacts or cultural mores. But it also means admitting that American culture is fundamentally African American culture. Yeah. It's our music uh, that's out there. Uh, it's our, uh, our swagger if and, you dance, like, yeah. and dance yeah. that's out there. Uh, it also means um, finding, I think, unity Uh, around justice. Mm. So the Charlottesville uh, event uh, to say the Jews will not replace us. It raises up the whole horrible specter of increasing anti-Semitism here. And uh, it it should make us, it it should should wake us. It should wake us. Um, The Metz and so many others in Germany during that time, Bonhoeffer, Pastor Niemöller, We're all alert to the need for identification with the so-called other. Because on a purely self-interest basis, when there's no one left to get, Mm. they're going to get me, Mueller says. Uh, They came for the communists, I didn't say anything. They came for the tradespeople, I didn't say anything. They came for these, the Roma people, I didn't say anything.
0: And now they're coming for peaceful protesters. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah. Then they came for me. Yep. One of the key things that Cohn points out is silence. So, so white people have to let go of silence. Yeah. Yeah. It's a privilege. Yes, yeah. hiding behind, yeah. I didn't know. I think the presence of young white people in these new movements mm-hmm. is saying, yes, you do know. And you can learn, you can find out. Right.
0: And this is the that apocalyptic the mysticism of open eyes. Yes. That Mets wanted folks to have. I mean and geared towards solidarity, but in the form of compassion. Yes. A form of, of being able to to recognize what whiteness is, which is not easy. You don't realize it's almost a, a null value that you get to participate in without realizing what doors it opens, yes. Literally and metaphorically. Yes. And so it's, it's difficult, and, and Metz suggests operating with this dangerous memory, but he refers to the authority of the suffering. Yes. of That is what should be at the forefront of our mind, Is yes. that, um, especially when it comes to political participation yes. and, and using, yes. if you can say this, uh, your religious beliefs and praxis in a way that is very concrete uh, in the world. Part of what that is going to mean is deferring to the authority of the suffering. And so there should be action and there should be movement and participation and risk even in certain ways, putting your body in the way of of doing things like that. But it also means deferring to folks and knowing when when to listen and not to speak. There's been lots of speaking been done for the last 400 some odd years in this nation uh, by white folks. And so part of this is going to be learning how to um, not only to recognize but to offer when it is appropriate to validate the authority of the suffering and yes. here that's going to mean um, trans persons and black folks and uh, the gay and, and, lesbian, gay folks, and lesbian folks gay and lesbian folks and indigenous folks and yes. queer folks here yes. and yeah that's difficult because it it makes i think white folks feel like they're losing something but there's so much to gain yes. there's there's only there's only gain yes. after all of this and i know it feels it seems like it's going to be difficult, but having your eyes open and, and seeing mm-hmm. something new for the first time mm-hmm. is shocking. Yes. But it is uh, never, I don't think, in the long term, a bad thing.
1: No. And and putting your body on the line, I mean, there have been examples in the last decade. Yeah. I mean, think of the mothers mm-hmm. who were standing in front of protesters just the other day yep. out in Oregon. Getting tear gas. Yes. Mm-hmm. Think of uh, the, the Army veterans who came to the pipeline a few years ago who, sti- who stood with indigenous people mm-hmm. in protest against yeah. uh, the pipeline. And you knew that no one was going to shoot a veteran. You just knew it. Yeah. But what a powerful image that became and what a powerful moment of reconciliation right. that happened between right. the army, those right. armed forces, and the indigenous people, those warriors. Right. A, real, um, um, a real opportunity that people took and uh, and couldn't move from, uh, or think of right now. Uh, we've been perhaps not aware of what's happening in indigenous communities. Um, the Irish mm-hmm. from Ireland mm-hmm. have been sending money yep. to the Navajo. Yep. I mean, because the Navajo sent money to the Irish during the famine. Right. It's it's almost unbelievable. Right. But but it's right. the power really of compassion that you're talking about. And compassion is cognitive. Mm -hmm. You have to know something. It's affective. You've got to feel something, but you're also, you have to also, it's moral, you have to Mm. act on what you know and feel. It can't can't be empty. And and in this way, Christianity provides, I think, uh, an opportunity for us because we've used it to oppress people. We can also use it as we've learned in black theology, to liberate people, yes. as we've learned in feminist theology, yeah. to liberate people, yeah. in Latin American liberation theology, that, that's what that's about. Yeah. So, so, so your point about, uh, I mean, just going back to this issue of being white, yes, I mean, it's to be aware, it's an old uh, article, Peggy McIntosh, right. my Unpacking knapsack the, of mm, privileges, of privilege. you unpack those. Yeah. That, that's a key thing. Yeah. Here at Boston College, we try to do that with students, particularly in the Pulse program, mm-hmm. to teach them uh, that in fact, there are other people out there who are just like them. Right. They just happen to have, uh, you know, that that old thing that Machiavelli talks about—luck.
0: Mm, they mm-hmm. had bad luck. Yeah.
1: Fortune didn't smile on them. Um, maybe they made some uh, some good choices, but but luck didn't push it forward. Right. And so it it's helping young people be aware mm-hmm. um, of. What, what's happening in the world in which I live? And, and what do I get in this world right. that I didn't earn? Right. And we, we don't ever earn anything no. when you think about the world. Right. We, didn't, we didn't earn this, these buildings. We didn't build them, but we use them.
0: And I think, I think this that's what brings me back to, to George Floyd is that you know, no one earns the breath that they take into their bodies, yeah. but it can be taken away. Yes. And, and it is taken away every single day. Um, by police, by, yes. by people who see themselves as judge, jury, and executioner there in that, in that moment. And <clears> so <throat> I, I think that if we realize that it's not just, that's not luck, there are social goods, there's social forms of equality that yes. we should want for all people. You know, the the term that's gone out of favor, the common good of, of wanting what's good for everyone. Yes. Um, that's, that's difficult whenever we have uh, commodified greed. Whenever yes. it's, it's a good, yes. we make television shows about it. Yes. And, you know, we yes. you know, we form entire institutions yes. around it. And so, I, I think if if folks can look and see something else that Matt said is that there is no suffering that does not concern us. Yes, you know, so whether it's the Irish caring about the Navajo uh, or about aid that we send to other parts of the world, um, it's it's good to look and to realize that not only is there poverty and is there hunger. Um, but there's also resistance, and there's yes. also creativity yes. that that we must pay attention to. But there yes. are also structures, including policing, that need to um, that that need to be checked
1: and uh, and evaluated. Yeah. So the cry "defund the police" does not counsel. mean get rid of the police. Hmm. It means think about how we've asked the police to do too much, yeah. and think about how we allocate social services. Right. So so I think uh, I think the burden here for for us in terms of um, the Catholic tradition, I and mean, you brought up the common good, and so I want to give a plug for one other person, and that is for Andrew Cuomo, the yeah.
0: governor of oh, New York,
1: yeah. who has had his eye, I think, uh, on the common good. Not using that phrase, but but there's all about uh, trying to figure out how we're unified. Right. I mean, he's, he's, he says, "New York, we're tough, we're smart, we're disciplined, and we're unified. Right. We've got to be unified, so that everything." Uh, that affects one of us, affects all of us. Yes. And that's one of the things that's very tragic that we've learned from uh, going through this experience of the coronavirus at this time. I, I think that uh, that's one way, perhaps, to kind of round us out. Mm. Uh, I mean, the common good. That's something that we try to teach students right. here. And it's also something that Boston College is struggling to learn.
0: Yeah.
1: Not only the common good right here, right now in our own little bailiwick, but our larger contribution to the larger world. Right. And to look at it with open
0: eyes. Yes. Well, thanks for joining me today, as I know it was a privilege for me. Um, and thank you, everyone who chose to watch and to listen. We hope that this has been
1: fruitful. Well, it's been a pleasure for me, because it's always a pleasure to talk to one of your ace students. <laughs> and so thank you all for tuning in, listening. Thank you.
0: For more Catholic faith resources, follow us at bc.edu c21 or via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.